You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, this is Tabitha. How are you doing? So I had a really busy week at work this week. I also produce a podcast on workplace communications for the company that I work for, Twine. And I had lots of fascinating people to interview, and but I've been dealing with a lot of audio to edit since then. So this podcast here for my own personal podcast this week is going to be a little bit shorter than usual and I'm not bringing in anybody to interview but I do hope to bring in somebody to interview next week and I think you're going to really enjoy it. Anyway so this week's just short kind of sweet but maybe not because the topic of eating disorders never can be that sweet can it? I'm talking today a little more about the HPA axis, fight or flight reaction, that some of us have in regards to food and even the thought of eating this week. I hope you enjoy it and always reach out for me if you want to suggest anything that I might discuss on this podcast or if you'd like to be interviewed. Here's the podcast. So I explained in the last podcast how I used information from the Feast website on family-based therapy to kickstart my own inner mealtime matron. That was probably the single biggest initiative for me in my recovery. Establishing that my eating disorder was not me, which led me to be able to foster a healthy hate of anorexia and develop an inner voice ordering me to eat. But that's not the whole story. Eating disorders are dreadfully multifaceted, so recovery tools and approaches have to be also. In this post, I'm going to explain how I use knowledge about the parts of my brain that control fear to overcome the fight-flight response to eating. So, for those of you who are trying to understand an eating disorder but have never had one, here's something to help you. Close your eyes. Come on, just humor me here. Oh, well, don't do this if you're driving, or we'll all be in a horrid mess. But the rest of you who are not driving, close your eyes. Now, what are you afraid of? Snakes? Spiders? Maybe it's heights? Flying? Donald Trump? Think hard for a second and I want you to identify one thing that you are genuinely afraid of. Now, whatever that is, I want you to keep your eyes closed and imagine it in detail. What's it look like? How big is it? Where is it now? If it's a person or an animal, I imagine that you imagine that you are in a room with it. You're sitting where you are right now and it's close to you. Maybe it's a snake and it's within touching distance, just a foot or so away now. Imagine touching it or imagine it slithering over you. Okay, now you can stop. Do a body scan and see how you feel. If your heart rate rose and you feel hot and sweaty or panicky, you just experienced your HPA axis firing. That stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. In short, this is your fear response and that fear response, that HPA axis, that is fired off by the amygdala in your brain. But more on that in a second. So consider the whole time that you were sitting there imagining the thing that you're afraid of. You knew it wasn't in the room with you and yet you still experience fear, correct? So if we look at that rationally, even if there was a snake in the room with you, the chances are it wouldn't try and hurt you. Even greater chance that it's not even a poisonous snake. 
So if you think about it rationally, it's silly to be scared of a poor little snake because minding his own business. But you know what? You still are, aren't you? If you're scared of snakes, you're scared of snakes. And what about spiders? My little sister runs screaming from the room at the sight of a common harmless house spider. As a child, my mum had to do a nightly spider check under her bed and in all of the cupboards or my sister wouldn't sleep. And if she even thought that there might be a spider in her bedroom, that was it. She had to sleep in with me or in with my other sister. Now, that's not rational, but many of you can emphasise. That's how I used to feel about food. Now, of course, I did not run screaming from the room every time I saw food. No, because I didn't want people to think that I was crazy. So I hid it. What that looks like is on a daily basis is me walking around with this huge amount of stress hormones rushing around my body. Especially around mealtimes, I was tense, irritable. I was ghastly to be with because all my energy was being focused on the simple act of pretending that I was normal when sirens were constantly going off inside of me. And guess what? That is utterly exhausting. When I had anorexia, I was working all day really hard just to hold myself together. <laughs> and people wondered why I didn't seem as fun and carefree as I had been before. I was permanently on edge and my body didn't know what to do with all the stress hormones constantly being released within me. I think that part of this is what led me to running and exercise in the first place, you know, to run off the stress as a response to it. But after a while, that outlet was converted into another way for, me to, for my eating disorder to express itself. So how did I overcome this? Once I was far enough into recovery to identify that my eating disorder was not me, we discussed that last podcast, I was also able to identify the situations and circumstances where I was the least like myself. Yeah, bingo, mealtimes. I analysed my thoughts and behaviours at mealtimes to see if I could work out what was going on. Initially, I struggled to articulate what I was feeling or understand it, but then I began to recognize that what I was feeling was panic, fear, and stress. And, you know, I took psychology at uh, college, so I recognized, okay, that's fight or flight reaction stuff. I began to research the processes behind this in order to try and understand why I was getting this reaction to such non-harmful stimuli such as food. I knew it wasn't rational to feel fight or flight reaction towards food. So I learned that the amygdala in the brain initiates this reaction. And the thing with the amygdala is that it doesn't care too much about being rational. It's only really bothered about avoiding danger, identifying danger and then getting you the hell out of the way as quickly as possible. That's how humans survive. Good job. Fear is a really important reaction to danger because it motivates us to remove ourselves and pretty damn fast. The whole point is that the amygdala reacts really quickly. It's a reflex. Standing and thinking too long when there's something dangerous in front of you just might get you killed, in, at least in evolutionary terms it might have. But why my amygdala started to react to food as if it was dangerous stimuli? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that now, and I didn't know it then. All I knew is that that was what was happening, and that anorexia had corrupted that part of my brain somehow. All I knew then was that I had to work out how to override this reaction if I was going to have any hope of a normal life. So I started to learn about the part of my brain that can override the amygdala, if you train it to. 
Humans have a really long history of being able to train their brains to override fear responses. And I was listening to this really interesting podcast. FYI, I say that a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts, interesting ones as well. Anyway, so I was listening to this really interesting podcast on fear recently that explained how we can overcome fear and how humans have done that over time. Just the very fact that humans can hunt food to pick up a spear and, and hunt prey those early humans would have had to override the fear instinct that they had around animals. You know, they've seen that there must be a long-term goal in just sitting there and trying to be fearless and, and actually hunt prey and not run away. And we've been doing it ever since. You know, that's how humans learn how to fly. There's lots of things that we do, some of them revolutionary and some of them just every day, that show us that we can override what would be normally a very scary thing for us. Other animals aren't quite as good at doing this, but we've domesticated enough of them for long enough to prove it's possible. But that's at our will more than it is theirs. But I digress. Humans have this ability to assess when overcoming a fear maybe lead to greater long in long-term gains than running away from it does. And that's what sets humans apart. And that part in the brain is called the prefrontal cortex. This is the executive functioning part of the brain, and it can override emotionally-based thoughts. It takes some effort, but it's possible. And so I read, was reading about this, and I was able to understand that somehow this disease, this eating disorder, had corrupted my amygdala to make my HPA axis fire at the sight of food. And I started to work on challenging that. So those of you who are afraid of snakes, this is the equivalent of sitting in the room with a snake and overriding that impulse to run. Exactly. Not easy, right? And I know some of you are still listening to this and thinking it would be impossible to have that level of fear towards food. But remember this, everything in our perception is controlled by the brain. If the brain tells you that a slice of pizza is more dangerous than a black widow, you will feel it and believe it to be true. Remember just a minute ago when I asked you to visualize that snake slithering over you? You shivered as if it was. And that was just because of my words. Nothing physical, no real threat. Yet you still responded as if there was a danger because your brain imagined there to be one. And take dreams, for example. If you've ever had a nightmare, you are well aware that the brain can create very real and frightening non-realities. If you've woken up from a nightmare in a sweat with your heart racing, then you know that the brain can produce a very real physical reaction to what is an imaginary construct. What I had to learn to understand was that my brain was lying to me. I had to learn not to trust my initial reactions to food and instead override them using that prefrontal cortex executive function. Like I said, not easy, but possible. So how did I do that? All right. Without getting too woo, I'll tell you the one thing that was a game changer for me in my ability to override my thoughts was yoga and meditation. Now, meditation works to quieten the amygdala and strengthen the prefrontal cortex. In light of what I've just explained about the brain, I'm sure you can understand how this is a really useful tool. If you don't believe me, just Google it. Studies with MRI scans show that after an eight-week course in meditation, participants' amygdala activity decreased significantly. In fact, the amygdala got smaller. At the same time as the amygdala shrank, the prefrontal cortex in their brains became larger and thicker. 
I'll link to that study in the show notes. Now, yoga classes as well can help you learn how to deal with a stressful situation without losing it. I'll elaborate. The asanas or yoga postures in a vinyasa or hatha class are often quite difficult. People think yoga is relaxing. It is after a while, but not initially. You know, you go into the class and you're asked to stand on one leg and put the other leg in the air. And you're also in this, you know, deep stretch at the same time. It's not easy and it's a stressful position. Not only are you put in a stressful position, but then you're expected to stay there sometimes for minutes. Now, what happens is that after a matter of seconds, your body starts to freak out a little bit. You're in this really uncomfortable position. You think you might fall over and it's just not very happy. You start to sweat. Panic starts to come in. And then you're told to breathe. Long, slow, deep breaths. Now, what this deep breathing does is it takes you right out of that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system response and puts you into your parasympathetic nervous system and the key to all this is that it is impossible to freak out if you are breathing long slow deep breaths because if you are breathing long slow deep breaths you're in your parasympathetic nervous system and that is not the one that does the flight or flight reaction so i was able to practice this technique in yoga of being in a stressful situation and calming my body down and breathing long slow deep breaths practice it in yoga and then take that skill that i learned and use it in food situations so i'll let you into a secret just there yoga had such a profound effect on me that i became a yoga instructor for a while i taught exclusively to veterans with ptsd and survivors of domestic abuse These days I still do a lot of yoga, but I don't like yoga. The whole scene is is just not me. I'm cynical, I swear. I don't like all the huggy, lovey, doviness of the yoga community. I don't like all the touching. It's just not me. But I have to do yoga. Because all of the other side, being in those postures and learning how to control my breathing helps me slow down my thoughts Pick out the ones that I think are worth listening to and bin the ones that are not. There are other ways around improving your executive functioning other than yoga and meditation, but ironically, most of them are not friends with eating disorders, so they're kind of hard to kick off with. Eating fat's an example. Fat is good news for brain functioning, but that one's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? Sleep. Sleep's another good one. CBT. But at its core, you have to learn how to sit through fear. You have to learn to sit there and let the snake slither over you. And you have to learn to breathe long, deep, slow breaths as you do so in order to signal to your body that this is not something worthy of panicking about. And you have to do it enough times that your amygdala gives up and stops calling the fight or flight reaction. The good news here is that it does get easier every time. Remember, your brain is like a computer. It's mostly reliable, but when it gets a virus, it does some really weird shit and can't be trusted. Anorexia is a virus, and it makes your brain lie to you. You can fix it, but you have to really understand and believe that your brain is telling you what your brain is telling you is not the truth in order to challenge it. I found the food is medicine mantra helpful in times when I wanted to turn and run. I often put an FU anorexia in front of it for good measure. Now, I must admit that these days I'm a lot more tolerant of other people's irrational fears than I used to be. When I was 15 and I knew everything, 
I looked askance at people who were scared of the dark, or snakes, or spiders. I was a horse rider. I rode horses over big, fixed wooden fences at the gallop for fun. I sneered at the other yard girls who jumped every time a rat ran over the hay. I was still scared of none of these types of things when I developed my deep fear of food. Isn't that ironic? Well, that's my story and my interpretation of the brain events that are behind all of this fear around food. But I'm not a professional. I'm just someone that Googles stuff and reads a lot of research studies. I'm not a neuroscientist. So I'm going to work to get a real professional who knows more about this sort of brain work than I do on the show next week. That's all from me for now. If you want to contact me, then you can do so via my website. It's um, tabithafarrar.com. I'll also put the show notes there, those links that I told you about those brain studies, just in case you don't believe me. It's pretty fascinating stuff, you've got to admit. You can also tweet at me. Twitter handle is at underscore fat underscore. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio. I think I swore in that one, didn't I? Did I mark the little E to say it was explicit? I probably forgot. Shit.